Welcome to the Peerbond Podcast, Chief Edition. I'm your host, Sunny Manivanan. Joining me today is Mike Mullinet, co-founder of the $4 billion valued Tech Unicorn branch, as well as the recently launched Dino. Beginning his career as a mechanical engineer at 3M, Mike's entrepreneurial drive led him to the software industry. In 2004, he co-founded Branch, a company at the forefront of cross-platform linking and attribution. As president and chief operating officer, Mike developed their revenue and GNA functions from scratch and helped Branch grow to over $100 million in ARR. Most recently, Mike embarked on a new venture with DNAP, aiming to enhance customer experiences for B2B companies operating on Slack and Microsoft Teams. Mike, I'm so thrilled to have you here with us today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Sonny. Appreciate it. Great. So you're a rare breed, which is that you're a two-time founder, and the last company you founded was a decade ago. So can you maybe tell us what you see as the major differences in starting a company in 2020 versus in 2014? Yeah, definitely a different environment. I joke that I forgot what it was like to be a seed stage startup because I forgot how hard the first three years are. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. I truly forgot. You just kind of remember the good times, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. So yeah, 2014, 2013, when we were getting branch off the ground, funding environment was better than it is today, for sure. There were fewer SaaS companies than there are today. So there's less competition, but also funding was just significantly easier. Fast forward to today, trying to raise around in late 2022 or throughout 2023, fewer rounds were getting done. They were taking a lot longer. They got a lot more scrutiny. Valuations were way down. I think that's good. I think it's healthy for the market. I think 2021, things got crazy and were, were not balanced. And I think this is a good reset for the tech industry. It makes it harder in the short term, but I think that's okay. I think it's really good. The other kind of differences, yeah, definitely volume of SaaS companies nowadays. There's a lot. I think one of the things that I'm also seeing is historically, you could build something that was more of a vitamin and people were willing to spend money on it. And now you really have to have some medicine. Like you really have to have something that's solving a true pain point for people in order for them to buy right now in today's environment. Fast forward two years, I think it's going to be back to normal. And I think people are still going to be buying vitamins. But I think right now it's especially hard. That said, I think if you can succeed in today's environment, you have something special. And I think you have something that will be, or at least has a chance to stand the test of time because today's environment is unlike anything in the last decade. How did you identify the market opportunity for First Branch and not Dina? Tell us a little bit about what each company does, perhaps, and how you, along with your co-founders, develop the conviction that the idea was really worth pursuing for the long term. Yeah, I think, first of all, it's hard to have conviction, right? In the beginning, you can get excited about an idea, but you just don't know, right? I've had conviction about ideas that, frankly, sucked and should never have been a project or a company. And I've been on the fence about things that, you know, after a little bit of time, you realize that there is some value and then you get excited. But in the beginning, you're kind of unsure. And so conviction is hard, but I think you need to some degree follow your gut. I think the biggest thing is just doing something, doing anything, getting deep into a space ultimately allows you to uncover opportunities in that space. And so that was the case with both Dina as well as with Branch. So with Branch, that was not our first company. We'd actually worked on two other projects before that for about a year and a half. The first project was a hardware device, so completely unrelated, uh, that we worked on for a couple months and then we decided that we didn't want to work on that, but we wanted to work together on something. So we pivoted and we decided to work on a mobile app. 
And this is 2013 and building a mobile app in 2013, like good, good bet because we could see the trajectory of mobile and we knew that it was going to be something. And for us, I think the way we thought about it, both then as well as now with Dina is we're trying to choose an industry that was growing and where we saw massive potential. And I think if you do those things, irrespective of what product you decide to start building, if you pick the right industry, you will, even if you fall down, my co-founder said this, even if we fall down, we'll face plant into a pile of cash. And that's true if you pick the right industry, right? You could have an amazing product, level 10 product in a kind of small opportunity industry or a dying industry. It doesn't matter how good your product is. It doesn't matter how good you are. You've chosen the wrong industry. You're going to struggle versus you could be kind of mediocre and have a mediocre product. But if you choose the right industry and get the timing right through luck, mostly, you can have success despite all of the challenges or a mediocre product or a mediocre team, whatever it is, right? So with Branch, we're like, we just want to be in mobile. We don't know what it is about. We just know it's a growing industry. So we worked on a mobile app and it was a photo book sharing app, basically. And you know that worked out. It was like fine. But a year later, we were like, this is never going to be a billion dollar business. And we didn't want to dedicate the next 10 years of our lives to something that was never going to have potential to be a big size business. And then we stepped back and we said, what do we know about the mobile industry, the mobile app industry that we've struggled with, that everyone else struggles with? And we kind of narrowed in on this niche of like, we were spending a lot of our time trying to build solutions so that when a user clicked on a link, regardless of where they were on their phone, email, text, WhatsApp, doesn't matter, that the link took them to the right place. If they had the app, took them to the app, deep linked them directly into the content. If they didn't have the app, allowed them to download the app and then go to that content, right? So very niche and something that you wouldn't really think about just sitting in your room at home, theorizing what are all the potential problems in the world. And I think that's a key distinction because we never would have uncovered the opportunities for Branch had we not spent a year working on an app that ended up not being the thing. And I think too often people don't want to jump into entrepreneurship until they feel like they have the big idea. The problem with that is it's very hard, if not impossible, to come up with the big idea in theory, right? Without being deep into an industry and a problem set and then realizing, hey, there's a, there's a problem here that nobody solved and there's a bunch of other people that have the same problem. So for us, it was that deep linking part and the referral links part and wanting to have attribution for all of our end users for the mobile app, regardless of where they were coming from, not just ads, but also other things. And so that was the bet, but we didn't have conviction. We were kind of like, eh, is this the thing? Because remember, this is our third idea, right? So the first idea sucked. The second idea, you know, we worked on it for a year, but it wasn't going to be big. And at that point, we were like, maybe, or maybe we're just not good at this. Well, it turned out we just took us time to stumble into the right idea. And that was Bridge. Now, fast forward kind of eight years, the founding of Thena. Basically at Branch, we served a lot of our customers in Slack. We served our best customers in Slack and we had the best engagement with our customers in Slack. So the customers that were engaged in Slack, we had the best retention, the best expansion, the best relationships, the access to most people. It was amazing. However, Slack can be really noisy, hard to keep track of everything, doesn't connect with other systems, bunch of problems with it. And we had a conversation one day with CS leadership, and then basically it went something along the lines of, we have to support Slack channels with our customers. It is our highest engagement channel. If I could build the branch dashboard into Slack, I would, et cetera, et cetera. And then we realized we got to solve this with technology. And that was the moment where we're like, 
after five years of serving customers in Slack, we're like, hang on, there's potentially something here. And then so a couple of early branch employees had left and they were kicking around ideas. And this is one of the ideas that they were thinking about approached me and yeah, the rest is history. So, but same thing, right? Like we never would have been able to sit in a room and theorize, oh, maybe this is a problem. Like we had to be intimately in-depth serving customers in Slack to realize the nuances of the problem and the opportunity as well, and then take that bet. But again, we weren't convinced. There wasn't a ton of conviction, but we decided let's test it and then see what happens. And you'll realize really early on whether or not you have something, depending on what the, the reactions are pretty early. I loved everything you just said, especially because it's clear as somebody who's been in the industry myself for a while now that everything you said comes from hard-earned experience and in some cases failures. And it's so distinct from what people perceive to be entrepreneurship, where it's all about that one big idea. And so many people I talk to say, well, I never had the big idea, so I never started the company. And you just laid it all out and said, it's not about the big idea. It's about finding a problem space in an industry or a market that you like, where the trends are in your favor. The odds of face planting into a pile of cash is in your favor and not the other way around to paraphrase something you said. Yeah, exactly. I think like the biggest piece, the most common piece of advice I have for people that are thinking about entrepreneurship, want to get started in it, aren't sure is I tell them, just go do something. The first idea, it's probably not going to be it. The second idea may not be it. The third idea may not be it, but that'll lead you down a path that eventually, if you do the right things, if you iterate, if you listen to the market and you spend enough time doing it, you will uncover something. And there's a great talk by YC where they talk about tar pit ideas. And basically tar pit ideas are things that are seemingly obvious. They seem like good ideas. You kind of wonder why has nobody done this? Only it turns out that 10,000 people have done it before. And it's a tar pit because it seems appealing, but is actually a death trap. And the most common tar pit ideas are things that seem obvious to all of us. And they're things that we're just, every person is familiar with. It's the reason why there's probably been a thousand startups that have come out of undergrad university entrepreneurs doing something for internships. Because the only problem they know is around, it's hard as a student to find an internship, right? And so how many companies have been built helping undergrad students find an internship? The problem is it's been done a thousand times. It's a bit of a tar pit idea because like there's not actually that many people once you get out of undergrad that are actually your end consumers or end users and not a lot of money to be made because interns don't have money and whatever, right? But it's the same thing. Like you and I could be sitting at home and develop an idea for a consumer product and be like, yeah, but there's been a million other people that have had the same idea. To come up with truly novel ideas, you almost need to be in a very kind of unique niche area. And then that's when you'll uncover the thing that very few people saw but very few people have uncovered. And if you have that unique insight, that's where novel ideas come from. And then if it's a problem that many other people end up having over time, that's the real value. Incredible. The technology landscape obviously is changing fast and it has for our career, certainly. How have you pivoted to meet changing market demands? And, you know, let's take Dina, for example, which is more recent. What are some lessons that you can share with the audience? Two big things that have served me very well. And I just kind of, they're not crazy novel, but still kind of stumbled upon them and they're very effective. The first is listen insanely closely to your customers. Find the right ICP. Find the ones that are like the right fit, not the ones that are like, have really weird use cases. The ones that make up 70% of the market. Listen very, very closely to them. With Branch, what's amazing is after we built the initial idea and we went down that path for like a year and it had some traction, then follow-up products that we built, including the first paid products, the premium products, we started as developer tools, so a lot of it was free. 
But the three premium products that we launched a little bit later on were built because we looked at the data of how people were using our product and listened very intently to what people were saying, asking about, or requesting. Seems obvious, but surprisingly, like it doesn't happen as much as you would think. Because normally it's like, no, like we're building this thing this way. Everyone should just use it. Like, no, if people are taking your product and doing something different with it, that's the opportunity. And that's what we started to see. And, you know, with Branch, it was a bit unique because like it was a developer SDK and API and like people would use custom tags. And so they would label certain things. And we pulled that data. We did a Pareto analysis of how people were using it. And it was like the top three things made up like 80% of how people were using it. And I was like, oh, we should just build products around these three areas. So like we didn't need to frankly innovate after the first idea. All the other innovation was really just like, oh, people are using this thing for that thing. That was not the intended purpose. Let's go find out why. Oh, that's interesting that you're using it that way. Maybe there's an opportunity there, which then leads to the second part, which is I love asking people about their wish list or if you had a magic wand, what do you wish existed in the world that doesn't today? Because what that does is it removes the constraints of operating in today's world. What are the constraints of your product as it exists? And how do I operate within that? And if you free those constraints away, when you frame it that way and you say, if you had a magic wand, will you exist? Sometimes they're going to say things that aren't applicable to you at all and that you're never going to build because it's outside of your vision or outside of what you do. But every once in a while, somebody says something that unlocks a nugget that just makes a light bulb go off and you're like, oh my God, there's something there. And I remember one of the first premium products that we built at Branch. I was on site. This is like 2015, maybe. I was on site with Etsy and I was like trying to convince them to use us, but like the existing products hadn't they didn't get tried. Like they weren't valuable enough to them. And I asked the product manager and I said, in a perfect world, if you had a magical world, what do you wish existed? And he described to me something that was so perfect that I went immediately, typed it up into an email. I was like, the subject of the email was like, how we win Etsy. And it was just like a brain dump of everything that the PM had shared with me. And nine months later, eight months later, that became one of our first three premium products that we charged for. And Etsy did eventually become a customer. And I think they still are. All that came from asking that question that after like a dozen meetings up until that point, we hadn't unlocked that opportunity. But that then became a product that's probably generating 20 to 30 million ARR today. So I'm a big, big fan of that. Like if you had in a perfect world, if you had a magical wand, what do you wish existed? Because it frees those constraints. You do that and you do that enough, you'll start to see patterns emerge that those are the things that can eventually become your products. Love that. And tell me if this is not here or not, but those three big product ideas, I suspect that you didn't have them when you started working on branch at the beginning. That's correct. That's the other key thing, which is your first idea might get you the first couple million, but then you need the next set of ideas to get you to the tens of millions. But then eight years, 10 years down the road, it's going to be other things that you uncover that gets you above a hundred million to whatever. You might have some ideas, some early indications of what that could be, or you might not have any idea. That's okay. You need to constantly be listening to the market and uncovering those opportunities as you go along because you need to start niche, you need to start narrow, but you need to identify those bigger opportunities and more TAM over time. That's why I think a lot of companies actually struggle after they get to like 10 or 20 million because all the initial stuff that they built got them there, but how you need to innovate to go from, for example, 20 to above and you know, this is coming from somebody that's only done it once. <laughs> like, I'm not an expert. I haven't done this five times, but my experience has been the things that we needed to do above 10, 20 million were very different than what we did to get us to the initial 10 million. That was my experience. One final thing that I'll say here, because we talk a lot about the identifying new opportunities, identifying new products. 
The other thing that I think is important that I try to follow is observe the data to know what's okay killing and sunsetting. And you have to be okay killing ideas, sunsetting products. I try not to view those as failures, but rather I try to view everything as a learning. Everything is a stepping stone that got me to somewhere else. Everything is a learning that got me somewhere else or developed a skill set that is now in my tool belt. Those failures are good. Don't let them get you down. If you built a product, tried to sell it for a year and it didn't work, great. Kill it, learn from it, and then move on. And now you're better. And I think that's equally as important as identifying the new opportunities and products to build. Really insightful, Mike. Thanks for sharing all of that. It strikes me that in both your companies, part of the mission is about helping a company's customers have a better experience with that company and you know get the answers faster, get in the right place faster. And so you you really thought deeply about what it means to be you know customer centric and to really understand the customer deeply. Tell me about how you instill a customer-centric culture in your teams. What are some practices that you've implemented to ensure the customer needs are always at the forefront? There's a couple of different things that we did in the early days of Branch. I think two things really stood out to me. We made every person in the company for the first couple of years serve on the support team for half a day, once a quarter. And that eventually became hard to scale. So we stopped doing it, although I'm still a big, big fan of that. Because what that did is it built a level of empathy and understanding of our customers and how they're trying to use our product for everyone in the company. And I don't care if you were an engineer or a salesperson or the office manager, you had to do this. And it wasn't easy. Like somebody would struggle to even understand what the question was and how to answer it, right? And it does put a burden on the rest of the support team members who need to help. But it built a level of empathy and understanding that I think was unmatched. And I see a lot of companies and founders, and I've done this myself as well, in various points in my career, where when you become disconnected from the customer, you can be building a lot of stuff in a vacuum without any understanding of the customer, without any empathy of what they're going through. And so by having people be on support and actually interact with customers, that helped enable that. And then we do it even today where we'll bring in, for example, engineers, and they'll help interact with customers directly in Slack, which has been the second thing, which is we've relied on Slack really heavily, even going back to 2015, 2016. Now that was before Slack had Slack Connect and shared channels. And so even in the early days of branch, we would invite our customers to our Slack workspace as guests. And we would spin up a channel, they'd be single channel guests. And it was crazy because I remember one day in like, I want to say it was like 2018, talking to Slack and they're like, you have over 4,000 guests in your workspace, which was like, on the high end and it was extreme and it was a total mess. And that's when they told me that they were doing shared channels and we were in the beta for shared channels. And so we started moving everyone over to shared channels. The point about Slack was, and the reason I tell that story is because we realized that if you build a really close relationship with your customer and Slack kind of has this, has this sense of like, we're all on one team, right? It's not like vendor customer. It's like, we're on a, on a team in a group working towards a common solution or a common outcome, it totally changed the dynamic of how we interacted with our customers. And then ultimately our prospects as we started opening up Slack channels with the sales cycle as well, totally changed that. And like, what I really loved about it was not only do you feel like you're on the same team, but the volume, the level, and the frequency of feedback and asks and requests, all sorts of stuff from customers in Slack, which is a very informal way of communicating versus email versus a support portal is so immense, just the volume of Slack conversations and inputs that you get, that you're able to learn a lot more how people are engaging with your product. And that's why I said earlier, with our customers, when we were fighting about it at Branch, 
it was, and my stance was, this is our highest engagement channel. There is no better engagement channel than Slack with your customers. Email, good luck. Even getting in person, really hard. Zoom, meh, it's okay. But like Slack was everyday interaction with our customers. And so for me, I'm a big believer in that, which, you know, makes sense and why we ended up founding Athena because Athena is tooling and products to help you engage with your customers in messaging platforms like Slack and Microsoft Teams. The final thing that I'll say is in order to spend a lot of time with customers is I think as leaders, doesn't matter whether you're a founder, whether you're, you know, executive, CRO, VP sale, doesn't matter. Spend time with your customers. It's very easy to get sucked into internal focused tasks and meetings. And then you start to realize I haven't talked to a customer in a week or a couple weeks or months, the more disconnected you become from customers, the harder it is for me to make good decisions. So I try to prioritize spending time with prospects, spending time with customers. In fact, right now I'm traveling because I'm doing a customer roadshow where I'm going to three or four different cities just to meet with people in person, understand you know how things are going, what they're working on, what their priorities are, how they're thinking about you know all that sort of stuff. So as much as you're able spend time with customers, pop into random meetings with your team when they're meeting with customers, whatever it is, spend more time with customers is kind of like the, the mindset that I'm trying to operate with. It's a great perspective. Thank you. Okay. I want to talk to you a little bit about leadership and you've done something that's very hard to do in our industry, which is scale the company from inception to hundred million or and beyond. And now you're embarking on that journey again. When you were CEO at Branch, what were some of the challenging decisions that you had to make and how to shape your approach to leadership overall? Yeah. So over the years, lots of challenging decisions constantly, right? I, I think the one that I think about the most and I reflect on the most is at Branch, we did a round of layoffs during the pandemic, early in the pandemic. Here's why I think about that a lot. Then I'll tell you the outcome and how it's changed my approach. When the pandemic and lockdowns really hit in mid-March, Everyone was kind of unsure. Originally, it was, you know, it's going to be two weeks. And then, you know, you start to get to the end of March and you realize actually this might go through June, July. Little did we know how, how wrong we were. And then people started getting scared because the layoffs, everyone was monitoring that layoffs chart, right? And it was like unemployment was record high. Like it wasn't even close to any time in history. It was like this massive spike. And then everyone started extrapolating, okay, what happens from here? Well, people don't have paychecks. People can't spend money. The economy is going to collapse. We're going to go into a depression. It's going to be really bad. And then what happened was, for those that weren't either familiar at the time, maybe weren't in workforce, or even if you were, you may not have had visibility into kind of some of the conversations that were happening, at least for venture-backed companies. A lot of the conversation was, you got to cut, you got to cut now, and you got to cut deep. And there was an old Sequoia blog post or article that was from the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, it would have talked about, it had this chart of company A that cut early and deep and they survived and company B that didn't cut as early or as deep and then needed to do another round of layoffs and then needed to do another round of layoffs and they died. And so everyone kind of had this overly simplistic mindset of you got to cut early and you got to cut deep. I don't fault anyone for that. We made the decision to do that investors were saying, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it. Everybody, everybody in the market was doing this. I would argue that was wrong. And if I had a time machine and I can go back, what I would do differently is what a few companies did, which is say, hang on, let's pump the brakes a little bit. We don't know enough. 
This isn't like if we make this decision on April 7th versus we make this decision on July 7th, that it's going to make a material impact in the survival of this company. Let's let this play out a little bit longer. Let's monitor our metrics really well. And if then things are bad in some future state, we'll pick a timeline, July, August, September, whatever, then we can do it and it's not going to make a material difference in terms of our survival likelihood. That's not what most companies did. That's not what we did. I share this because it is one of the most important lessons that I've ever had, which is, it's actually twofold. One, listen to your gut and don't over-index on outside advice because outsiders don't know necessarily more than you do. And I think we were susceptible to hearing investors, and granted, everyone was saying this, so it's it's hard to push back and be like, no, we're going to go differently. Everybody was saying, cut now, cut deep. And there was like a little bit in the back of my mind of like, yes, I think this is going to be bad, but we don't know enough. What if we wait a little bit longer? But we didn't, we didn't wait, right? We did the cuts. Had we not cut, I think we would have saved ourselves a lot of pain. Because once we did that layoff, that was a massive hit to the company. It was a huge distraction. And then nine months later, when tech and mobile was going crazy positive early 2021, and everyone's like, holy shit, hire as fast as you can because things are crazy or mobile apps are like going off the charts. They're growing like crazy. Everyone's like, higher, 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 higher. I'm like, damn it. We didn't lay off 90 people. We didn't need to replace those 90 people. We could be spending our time doing actually value-add stuff instead of going and hiring. And so for me, it was don't over-index on outside advice because other people don't necessarily know better than you. So follow your gut to some degree, or at least question some of those things and maybe push back a little bit. And then two, don't move as quickly on some of those irreversible decisions. Easy decisions or reversible decisions, cool, move quickly. But something like laying off 10, 15, 20% of the company, give yourself a little bit more time. I like the way James Clear framed this in uh, a recent newsletter where he said, so hat tip to him, where he talked about decisions are like hats, haircuts, and tattoos. Hats, haircuts, and tattoos. Most decisions are like hats. Put it on, take it off. You don't like this one. Put it on, take it off. Easily reversible. No impact. You change your mind two seconds later, no impact. Maybe your hair gets a little bit messed up. Haircut, a little bit less reversible. Not really irreversible. Maybe you could fix a little bit. But like a year from now, if you made a bad decision on a haircut, is it going to still be bad? No. Is anyone going to remember? No. You're probably not even going to remember. A tattoo, that's irreversible, or at least pretty irreversible. That's more permanent. You make a bad decision on a tattoo a year from now, it's still going to be there, and it's still going to be a bad decision. And so for us, I think the layoffs were more like a tattoo. They were like somewhat reversible, but like a pretty permanent thing that like made an impact for years, and we made it too quickly, and we were too influenced by outside investors. That, I think, was... The thing that I think about the most, the most challenging decision, but also the thing that I try to reflect on the most and has changed me as a leader the most in the last couple of years. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that story. And certainly you were not the only one in that situation where decisions had to be made, or at least we all felt the decisions had to be made very quickly. Then we all saw the world turn around very quickly as well. Back to it's all things digital are coming up basis. And now you got to go back on the upswing of the roller coaster soon after we all thought the world was going to end. But incredible, incredible lessons learned from that tough time. Thanks for sharing that so transparently. I want to ask you about 
team dynamics in a high growth environment. In the tech industry, I think, you know, we're now in this phase of 2023, 24, where there's certainly been a downturn and, you know, teams have changed composition. And I think everybody's trying to figure out what do we do and where do we go and how do we work together? What have you learned about, you know, team dynamics in a high growth environment that you want to share with? Yeah. And it's not just the macroeconomic environment. It's also this new environment since the pandemic of hybrid work environments too. It's a double whammy in terms of two big shifts in the last few years that have totally changed the working world. So I think there's a couple of different things. First and foremost, I think for me, at least what I've learned a lot of as I've observed team dynamics, interpersonal dynamics, all sorts of stuff, building and growing a team, especially in a fast growing company during a crazy time, pretty much all team issues boil down to what I call the three C's. That's context, communication, and collaboration. Anytime I look at a team issue or even just a company issue, and I'm like, what is going on here? And I get down to the deep enough root cause, almost always it's one of the three C's, sometimes multiple. Context, communication, and collaboration. Here's what I mean by that. Context. Context is one of my favorite words. Running branch, people know. One of my favorite words was context because it's too easy to view something simplistically not understand the context of a situation or why somebody made a decision and then have a differing opinion. Different opinions are great, but the first thing you should do is understand the context. My decision around something based on the context I have might make total sense, but to you, Sonny, who doesn't have that context, you might be like, what the heck is Mike doing? That's such a weird or wrong decision. A lot of it comes down to context. And the challenge with context is... Not everyone has all of it, and it's very hard, and it takes a long time to inform or get people up to the certain level of context where it's like at least somewhat equivalent. But I try to ask like, okay, if you are seeing friction with somebody or if you're misaligned, get in a room with them, get on Zoom with them. I bet you it is context. And if you understand the context or they understand your context, I bet you you're going to be much more aligned. That's like the biggest thing. Communication, second one. Communication at the end of the day is like the way in which you transfer context, but communication comes in a lot of different forms, right? And I see typically when people are having issues, they're not communicating. They're not talking. They don't have the context because they haven't communicated. Further, there's different challenges in terms of the way in which we communicate now versus the way in which we might've communicated five years ago, pre-pandemic. If everyone's in the same office, if your team is in the office and you're kind of like, you have a quick issue or you have a quick question. It's just like, hey, what do you think, Sonny? And we talk in person, much easier. Very high bandwidth form of communication. You understand body language much easier and it's much quicker. In a remote or a hybrid world, there's somebody on, for example, the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast. We're working in different places. We try to communicate over email or Slack. You don't understand tone. You're missing information because it's low bandwidth or because it's like a pain in the butt to type out a lot of stuff. You just kind of like shorten it. The thing that you might've spent five minutes talking about, you shorten down to one sentence. <laughs> like that is a problem. And I see how much miscommunication happens in written form. And I try to keep an eye on it. And one of the tips that I give to people is like, listen, if a thread goes more than five messages, 10 messages, get on a Zoom because there's you're probably not communicating well. And so communication is that second piece. Form of communication, volume of communication, frequency of communication, form, volume, frequency. And then the third thing is collaboration. 
at the end of the day, you might communicate okay, you might have context, but if you don't work well together as a team with a shared goal, with high trust, you're probably not going to be effective. And so having that level of collaboration is super important. And what I found is people that have high trust and camaraderie and rapport collaborate much more effectively. And I think one of the challenges over the last few years in a hybrid or remote work environment is building that rapport and building that trust and building those relationships is much harder. And what that means is it ends up making collaboration harder. And you tend to not feel as close or as tied to your colleagues. Maybe don't have the same level of trust in your colleagues. And so that leads to worse collaboration. And so for me, as I think about how do we build this team and how do we ensure good team dynamics? Okay, people need to understand context. People need to make sure that they're communicating effectively. But then in order to make sure that they're collaborating effectively, we need to do things like bring them all together, bring them on site, have team building activities, connect people in ways that they otherwise wouldn't be connected to form those kind of second degree connections or loose connections, we'll call them. If you do that and you're collaborating well, you'll communicate better, in which case then you'll share more context and then you'll understand everything. It all comes down to the three C's for me. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Listen, appreciate your incredible wisdom from several years of just grinding away at it and growing companies all the way from zero to you know the heights of the industry. And uh, doing that in all kinds of different economic conditions is no, no small feat. So thank you for coming on the pod and sharing your insights with us. You know, given that this is the Peer Bond podcast, I ask every guest for two peer nominations of folks that you really admire that you'd love to see on the podcast. So who would your peer nominations be, Mike? A couple of folks I'd probably recommend. So Mata, my branch co-founder, and she led marketing at Branch for nine years. And then the CMO at Carta, Jane Alexander, who I think would be very insightful as well. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Okay, the last section of the podcast is the rapid fire round. So think, you know, Coke or Pepsi, I'll ask you a few and then let you go about your way. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Are you a coffee or a tea person? Coffee. Great. Given that your company works in Slack, what's your favorite emoji? <laughs> the par- uh, some people hate this. The party parrot. The party parrot. Which is like this. Yeah, the party. Well, Mike's going to be the post that we put on social media as this video of you doing the party parrot. That's an excellent, excellent emoji choice. Yeah, I like it. Are you a pizza person or a burgers person? Oh my God, pizza. Okay. Favorite food. Okay, excellent. Morning person or night person? Uh, night person. I don't know why. I just get energized at the time when I should be going to bed. That's when I have the most energy. And then I struggle to get up every morning. <laughs> I wish it was different. I wish I could wake up early and exercise. But yeah, I just get jazzed at 10 p.m. at night. I get it. I get it. Okay, last one. City or countryside? I romanticize the countryside, even though I know practically it's not very good. I'm still going to say countryside because I have a dream of one day owning a farm and you know living out in the country. So I'll say country. Excellent. Love that answer. Mike, thank you again for joining us. Really, really insightful. Just so incredible to hear you talk about your career and the lessons you've learned. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sonny.